0: What's new in science this week? Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in
1: science.
2: Bench Talk, the The week in in science.
1: science. Yay! Hey, we're celebrating. Forward Radio is five years old this week. Dave Robinson here, and that's right, it was five years ago, on April 9th, 2017, that you could first hear amazing local, national, and international news right here on 106.5 FM in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, if you've listened to Ford Radio in the past, you know that we don't run commercials, and we refuse to accept financial help from large corporations. We like to keep our independence, and we prefer providing a wide range of perspectives that aren't tainted by big money or political parties. But guess what? Someone has to pay for staying on the airwaves. We've got to pay for a studio and for our transmitter to broadcast our radio signal to most of the Louisville metro area. We've got to pay for our website, etc., etc. It costs about $7,300 a year to keep the station going. So, how have we survived these five years with such a measly budget? Well, first of all, we're all volunteer-run. No one gets paid a dime. And secondly, it's through the generous support of listeners like you. So please consider contributing during our fun drive, which is going on right now. Just go to forwardradio.org and click on the button at the top that says Donate to our Pledge Drive. We're trying to raise $5,000 this week, and it looks like at the moment we're only about halfway there. Now, if you've already contributed, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. But if you haven't yet, please donate. We'll take any amount that you could afford, but I can tell you that there's gifts to be had if you donate $25 or more. And there's another way we can thank you for your support. We're going to have a face-to-face celebration on Saturday, April 9th, from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Tim Faulkner Art Gallery at 991 Logan Street. I hope to see you there. In the meantime, on with the science. Now, first, we're going to hear from Rob Weber, who's going to update us on what's happening on the science and education front in the Kentucky State Legislature this year. And after that, you'll hear from J. Scott Miller, professor of physics at Maysville Community and Technical College. He'll fill us in on what we can see in the night sky this month. And then we'll end the episode with an interview by Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. She interviewed two computer science students from Western Kentucky University. They talked about their award-winning research on bacteriophage. Their names are Bella Norman and Sarisha Lohano. Well, on with the show. State lawmakers have successfully completed
0: the one duty that our state constitution specifically tells them they're responsible for. Know what it is? You got it. It's the state budget. Every two years, lawmakers are required to pass a two-year spending plan for the state. They took care of this on March the 23rd. That was their hard deadline for getting a budget passed because that was the last day they were meeting before a veto recess period. They wanted to make sure the budget was passed before this recess so that they can then come back in the middle of April. And they'll have an opportunity to override any vetoes or line-item vetoes cast by the governor. Typically, in a document as large as the budget, there's some things in there that the governor will make a move to take out through a line-item veto. If he does, lawmakers will then have a chance to come back in mid-April and consider overriding any vetoes that are cast. So, what's in the budget that's important to the science community? Well, there's plenty in this budget. We did not have the normal tight budget and and fights over possible spending cuts like we've seen so often in years past. Right now, the state has a historic surplus, largely due to federal funds that have come in through the pandemic and through infrastructure spending. So, lawmakers had a decent amount of money to work with, and there were increases in a number of areas of state government. One of the biggest items concerns pay raises for state employees. Workers will get an 8% raise in the first fiscal year of this spending plan. And in the second year, there's enough money available for 12% across-the-board raises. But the way that money actually gets distributed will be guided by a personnel study that the Personnel Cabinet has been asked to complete. School funding will see an increase. The SEEK per pupil school funding will go up from $4,000 per student to $4,100 per student in the first fiscal year of this budget and up to $4,200 in the fiscal year following that. There were no specific raises for teachers in this budget, but lawmakers say that since there is an increase in school funding at the local level districts will be able to decide how that money gets applied towards possible raises. This budget does include full funding of kindergarten. There are, however, no additional investments in preschool. There's $11 million for the Read to Succeed program to make sure young kids are learning to read and enjoy it. There's also increases in post-secondary education funding. There will be $1.03 billion in the next fiscal year and $1.08 billion the following year. $97 million of those funds will be used and distributed through performance-based fundings. Also important to the post-secondary education community, Kentucky State University is getting an infusion of $23 million that the school needs to become financially stable. There is also an additional $15 million available for the Council on Postsecondary Education to distribute to Kentucky State University as the university reaches goals and benchmarks. The budget provides $40 million for the Bucks for Brains program. That is a program that in years past has helped lured some top researchers to Kentucky universities. The funding for Bucks for Brains has declined over the years, but this budget is bringing it back. Although conservation advocates were hoping that there would be a funding increase for the Land Heritage Conservation Fund as well as the Pace Farmland Conservation Program, there is no additional funding for those conservation efforts. However, there's more than $3 million that will go to a Cumberland Forest Conservation Project. That'll be a small part of what is a huge project to preserve land throughout the Cumberland Forest area across several states, including Kentucky, of course. This project as a whole, by conserving this forest, will provide a way of storing millions of tons of carbon dioxide, as well as connecting important migratory corridors. Also important to the science community, there's $1.75 million in each of the next two fiscal years for Kentucky Mesonet. Kentucky Mesonet is a division of the Kentucky Climate Center, and it's a statewide weather and climate monitoring, infrastructure, and operations center. It's based out of Western Kentucky University. They have weather stations throughout the state that can provide information in real time to their operations center, which can then be distributed out across the state. Kentucky's a leader in having an operation like this, and other states have taken notice and showed interest in trying to develop something like this in their states but it's proving that investing in monitoring weather helps us know when conditions are dangerous and when alerts need to go out that'll help protect people and property when severe weather threatens. Although there had been some hope that there'd be an appropriation in the budget to establish a Kentucky Center for Cannabis Research at the University of Kentucky, that money is not in the budget. People on both sides of the medical cannabis issue have been urging more study of the cannabis plant, to get a better idea of the efficacy of medicines derived from the plant, as well as any potential harms that could come from them. Both advocates and opponents of medical marijuana have united in calling for more research on the cannabis plant. The budget passed both the Senate and the House by wide margins. With billions of dollars of spending and funding increases across areas, there are many appropriations and items in here that lawmakers are happy about. I'll mention one more item before we wrap up today. A major bill dealing with our education system recently passed. This is a bill that would allow funding for charter schools. Kentucky passed legislation about five years ago that would allow charter schools in Kentucky, but because there was no funding available for these schools, none have started yet. This bill will change that by creating a funding stream. And of course, that's what makes this a divisive issue. Money will follow students wherever they go to school, whether it's to the public schools or to the charter schools, which would take money away from our traditional public schools. Supporters of the charter schools point out the advantages of school choice, while opponents of the legislation say that money should be put towards making sure the public schools we already have are delivering top-quality educations to students throughout the state. The governor is expected to veto the charter schools legislation, but the legislation did pass both the House and Senate with veto-proof majorities. Slim veto-proof majorities, but veto-proof nonetheless. Between the two chambers, the vote was closest in the House, where charter schools had 51 lawmakers voting in favor. 51 is the magic number. That is the veto-proof majority. Which means, if one of those lawmakers were to vote different, if this comes up for a veto override vote, That could sink the legislation. That's not expected to happen, but it does show how slim the margins are on this issue. We're sure to hear voices on this issue in the days ahead, as people either ask lawmakers to support or oppose the charter schools. Among the voices on this issue is the state's well-respected Pritchard Committee. They don't take an outright position for or against charter schools, but rather focusing on saying that if charter schools come, they need to be done the right way. And as they look at the charter school bill that has moved forward, they have decided this bill is not up to snuff. Here's what their president and CEO said in a statement. The Pritchard Committee opposes House Bill 9 because the pilot program introduced could compel authorizers to approve public charter schools that do not meet the application requirements and fit our long-stated position that any public charter school sector be well-regulated and accountable for improved academic outcomes. If you've got an opinion on this issue or any other matter before state lawmakers, you can share your feedback by calling the General Assembly's toll-free message line at 1-800-372-7181. Lawmakers are now back in their home districts for their veto recess. They will return to the State Capitol on April 13th and 14th for the final days of the session. The Kentucky Academy of Science will be there, making sure that the science community has a voice in public policy in Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more about our group, I urge you to check us out online. You can see the Kentucky Academy of Science website at kyscience.org. Reporting from Frankfurt, for the Kentucky Academy of Science, this is Rob Weber.
3: Scott here. April invokes thoughts of warmer weather. Warmer weather does tempt one to linger outside in the evening as the stars begin to shine. But starting out happens a bit later in the evening thanks to daylight savings time. It's nearly nine in the evening before I can head out myself and take a look around. I might as well look for some of the recognizable patterns that begin to emerge as darkness falls because planets are AWOL at this time in our evening skies. With the coming of darkness, Orion is still easy to spot. Dominating the southwestern sky as darkness falls, alignments of stars making it up can help us find stars and other constellations. The three belt stars send the eyes westward toward the bright star Aldebaran. Aldebaran marks the fiery eye of Taurus the bull. The tight V-shaped group of stars that includes Aldebaran is called the Hyades. They mark the face of the bull, with extensions of the arms of the V leading to two stars marking the horn tips. West of the Hyades, a cluster of stars known as the Pleiades mark the shoulder of the bull. Returning to Orion and his well-known belt of stars, a line going in the opposite direction as before leads us to Sirius, the brightest star in our night sky. It is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, the big dog. The rest of the dog is an approximate rectangle of stars south of Sirius, bright enough to catch one's eye as darkness falls. Sirius is one of the corners of that rectangle. A line along the shoulders of Orion, starting from the dimmer Bellatrex and passing through the brighter Betelgeuse, heading eastward, leads to Procyon, the brightest star in Canis Minor, the small dog. Small indeed because Procyon and one other star, just to its right, are almost the entire constellation. If Canis Minor is one of Orion's hunting dogs, it must be a puppy in training, as it is wandering away from the hunting scene made up of Orion, Taurus, and Canis Major. Back to Orion again for one more line drawing, this time going from Rigel, the rightmost and brighter knee star of Orion, diagonally through Orion to Betelgeuse and beyond. That line passes near a pair of stars of about the same brightness, the twin stars, Castor and Pollux, which marked the heads of Gemini, the twins. The bodies of these two extended along a pair of lines of stars directed back toward Orion. Gemini is nearly overhead as darkness falls. I now turn my face to the east and Leo the lion presents itself well above the eastern horizon. Its brightest star Regulus catches one's eye as one of the brightest stars in that direction. Above and to the left of Regulus is a sickle-shaped group of stars that mark the head of Leo while more to the east of it is a right triangle of stars marking the lion's hind quarters. Taurus, Gemini, and Leo are three constellations that lie on the sun's apparent path among the stars, known as the ecliptic. They mark the apparent location of the sun roughly from about mid-May, starting with Taurus, through June and into July for Gemini, and on through about mid-September by the time the sun appears to drift away from Leo. This apparent motion is due to our own orbital motion around the sun. Our moving vantage point gives the illusion that the sun is doing the drifting. So the ecliptic is simply the projection of our orbit around the sun onto the sky. A bit closer to the eastern horizon by nine in the evening is Arcturus. Arcturus is brighter than Regulus, but might be obscured by trees or houses early in the evening that may be close to one's observing site. Later in the evening, it will call attention to itself. And I know that I'm looking at Arcturus because the Big Dipper can lead me there. Catching my eye over in the northeast is the pattern of the Big Dipper. From now until autumn, it should be easy to spot at some point along an arc of its path in the northern sky. The handle of the Big Dipper is notably curved. If one follows that curve of stars onward, one is led to Arcturus. That is, one arcs to Arcturus. Arcturus is the brightest star in the constellation called Bootes, sort of a kite-shaped pattern of stars lying parallel to the horizon in the early evening skies of April. The two stars marking the front of the bowl of the Big Dipper, the Pointer Stars, provide a line northward to the north star, Polaris. I note that, as usual, Polaris is the same height above the horizon and in the north, making it an ideal marker for which I can find my directions in the night sky. Polaris is at the end of the handle of the Little Dipper, a real test of how dark or how light-polluted the skies are. Out away from the city lights, the curve of the Little Dipper's handle extending away from Polaris is pretty easy to spot, as are the four stars that make up its bowl. At this time of the year, if you have dark skies to see it completely, it seems the Big Dipper is positioned to pour its contents into the bowl of the Little Dipper in the early evening skies. Later this month, hopefully as temperatures become that much more favorable, a meteor shower should be visible, if getting up early is not a hindrance. Overnight, April 21st into the 22nd, but more pronounced an hour or so before dawn on the 22nd, that is while the sky is still dark, the Lyrid meteor shower may make its presence known. Though this shower may produce around a dozen meteors per hour near its peak, An hour or so before dawn in dark skies, the moon will be making an appearance as a waning gibbous moon, which is more than half lit. Rising just before 2 a.m., its appearance in the eastern sky may damp a bit the number of meteors one can see near the peak. But as an extra bonus, those AWOL planets are found in the eastern sky prior to sunrise. So April skies have some easy things to spot. Constellations up at this time of the year have bright stars within them to aid in the hunt. And toward the end of the month, a chance to catch a bit of space debris. All one needs to do is to get up and out under the stars.
4: Hello, this is Amanda Fuller from the Kentucky Academy of Science. I am in the studio today speaking with more of our student competition winners from the Kentucky Academy of Science annual meeting in November 2021. And I have two winners here from our Computer and Information Sciences section. And I will let you two introduce yourselves.
5: All right, Um, hello, I'm Bella Norman. I attend Western Kentucky University. And I'm Sarisha Lohano, and I also attend
2: Western Kentucky University.
4: Thank you so much, both of you for being with us today. So this research is really interesting. And I know we've heard a lot in recent years about antibiotic resistance, and we've also heard some about bacteriophages, but I think not enough. And I think a lot of people maybe don't realize how important bacteriophages can be for fighting diseases. And I wonder if one of you could tell us a little bit about the importance of of your research toward that bigger picture.
5: So antibiotics are really, really great. They're awesome. But there is the issue of where we've relied on them too much in recent years, and we've overused them to the point where, especially animals in the livestock industry are becoming breeding grounds for resistant infections. And so you can't treat these with antibiotics, obviously, but there is another option, which as you mentioned, are bacteriophage. And they are really, really important and relevant because they are totally a separate process than how medicine works. They don't really interact with the animal cells at all. They directly target the infection. And so what we're planning on doing by learning more about bacteriophage is developing phage therapy cocktails, which are bioengineered bacteriophage, which can specifically target these infectious pathogens that are within whatever the host may be, an animal, a human, whatever it is.
4: Great. Thank you. That's great context for the research. I would love for you to just start by telling us what your research is about.
2: Yeah. So we came into this project because we were a part of the C-phages and C-genes program with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, HHMI for short, and they are a partnered institution with um, Western Kentucky University, where we attend school. In these programs, we learned a lot about bacteriophage and their genomes, and in our bioinformatics class during the second semester of this program, we learned a lot about this, and we were also in a similar course called Computational Problem Solving, And we decided to combine our interests and create a program called GenFind. So we coded this into Wolfram Alpha Mathematica and it just, it predicts bacteriophage gene start sites using artificial intelligence. And we came up with this idea because in our bioinformatics class, we were annotating bacteriophage genomes by hand in a program called Pecan. And then for our project, we coded a program in Mathematica which annotates bacteriophage genomes for us. So it just speeds up the
4: annotation process. Excellent. And now would be a great time for me to mention for folks listening to this that if you want to see the presentation that Sarisha and Bella presented at the Kentucky Academy of Science meeting, at our website at kyscience.org, you can find their poster as part of our online program. And you're looking for a presentation called Predicting Mycobacteriophage Gene Start Sites Using Artificial Intelligence. And you can see some visuals there that accompany their research. And that would be fun for you to see as we follow along the interview. Can you all tell us some of the methods that you use to do this research?
2: Yeah, in our program, the user enters a raw nucleotide bacteriophage sequence and we coded some processing functions, which just split it into manageable readable chunks that the program can um, process. And then we were planning on using a neural network to make predictions of whether each open reading frame was a gene or not a gene. But after a little bit of comparison, we realized that classified support vector machines would actually work better because they're more efficient and they have two classes that the data could fall into, meaning it's a gene or not a gene, and it's really straightforward. And then the support vector machines developed an algorithm to sort the data into categories based on the training set of rules. So the training data set of rules was just our support vector machines trained on predetermined nucleotide sequences. So it made more sense to use a support vector machine. And Bella can talk a bit more about this in detail.
5: So within our program, GenFind, there are three different classifiers. So our first classify is trained on the genome of mycobacterium tuberculosis, not the one that'll give you tuberculosis. It's, it's a different strain. So you don't have to worry about that. And this is because the mycobacterial phage that infect this bacterium Their genomes have certain similarities, so it's relevant to compare them. Our next classify is trained from the bacteriophage genome. So this is introducing a new layer. So first it was the host bacterium, and now it's the bacteriophage. And this is trained using a specific little motif in front of every gene called a ribosomal binding site. And so we use this because it's either a yes or a no. And because um, we use support vector machines as are very yes or no machines, it makes sense to use an element of the genome where it's either present or it's not when a gene is there. Our last classify was used to run some tests on our code and see how accurate it was and see how well it predicted gene start sites. And so in this one, we added on to our first classify by adding another um, mycobacterium, which was mycobacterium smegmatis*, which is another related bacterium. So our test concluded that including more data from different hosts improved our accuracy in our predictions.
4: Where do people find bacteriophages? If you're looking at them as important therapeutics, where do we track them down?
5: Yes. So, I mean, look around you. They're everywhere. You know, you can touch your hands. They're there. They're on your face in great abundance. Wherever you can find bacteria, that's where bacteriophage are. They're very, very numerous, probably the most numerous entity in, in all of the earth. So especially in what we're doing, there's plenty of them in the soil and the ocean, which is, you know, they're particularly abundant there.
4: I wonder if you had any fun discoveries or surprises in the course of doing this research that you would like to share with us.
5: Yeah, so I can talk about it a little bit. I'll let Suresha continue it in a moment. So when we began this research, um, we were just, we're coding babies. You know, we'd only been coding for about four months before we started this. We had one semester of the introduction to Java as the language. And, you know, we started this program in probably February of 2021. While we were in bioinformatics and CPS computational problem solving, we were learning Mathematica, which is a similar coding language to Java. And over the course of the next three months, we slaved, we worked so hard for this project. It was so much trial and error, but we were surprised ourselves honestly, because at least I never really figured that, you know, with this little experience, you can make something this relevant and impactful, especially in you know, today's world. So we're proud of that.
2: Yeah, I think I enjoyed the process a lot. And I know Bella and I spent a lot of hours working on this. And it was really impressive. Like we really surprised ourselves. And we also just really enjoyed the C-Genes programs where we worked and enjoyed a lot. We didn't know what bacteriophage were before this, as Bella mentioned. And we even discovered our own bacteriophage. Bella's name ventured. Mine is named duckling. And it was really cool.
5: We enjoyed it. How many people
4: can say that they've named a bacteriophage?
5: Yeah, it's a great um, tooth, truth, and a lie thing. I'm going to use that next time. whenever I have to play that game. Excellent.
4: I wonder how you all are planning to continue this work. What's next for you in your scientific careers? We both really enjoy science, and we plan to
2: major in biology. And we have so much to learn about bacteriophages, such as phage
5: therapy. And we're really excited to further our knowledge. And I was going to add on to that. Because we finished this program in probably like May-ish to June of last year, and as Patricia mentioned, the C-genes and C-phages program is three semesters long. We did continue bacteriophage features this past semester. And this past semester, we did a lot of bacteriophage recombineering, which is the actual methodology that actually creates these bacteriophages we'll be using in phage therapy, if that makes sense. And our program is actually useful because the phages that we work with, editing their genomes, pulling things out, putting things in, you had to annotate those first, and so this bacteriophage that we worked with its name is Mumu. We actually trained GenFind on Mumu, so that's a cool little connection.
4: Well, thank you both for joining us today on Bench Talk. It's been great talking to you, and I wish you all the best luck in your future research. Thank you so much, thank you so much. much.
1: Much thanks to Rob Weber, J. Scott Miller, Amanda Fuller, Bella Norman, and Sarisha Lahano for being on Bench Talk the Week in Science this week. They've made their contributions. Now it's time for you to contribute. Please donate to our pledge drive. Just go to forwardradio.org and look for the link at the top of the page. And thank you if you've already contributed. And oh yeah, hope to see you at the party at Tim Faulkner Art Gallery on Saturday, April 9th from 1 to 4 p.m. Thank you, and see you next week here on Bench Talk, the Week in Science.